Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Blog Talk Radio. Hello, this is Gigabit Nation, broadband talk radio. I'm your host, Craig Settles, and I want to welcome everyone today in the audience. Um, thank you very much for taking time to be with us and uh, and our guest. Um, we're we're here to provide useful information and insights to help you know your communities, companies, nonprofit organizations, everyone get more better broadband in the places where it needs to be. So everyone's invited to uh, join us in the live chat room. That's also part of the uh, Gigabit Nation radio experience, and you can put your comments in there as well. Today's guest is Steve Reniker the CIO of Riverside, California. Uh, with a population of a little over 300,000 people, you, you probably might not think that there's a that they have a lack of broadband options. Um, but we hear lots of stories about small towns and rural communities needing broadband, and, and which is, you know, definitely valid issues. But we don't give enough attention, I think, to what's going on in the urban areas, and they have their fair share of broadband challenges as well. So I feel it's important that they are uh, and remain a, a key focus of our national broadband strategy along with our rural communities. Steve, welcome to the show. Thank you, Craig. Good to be here. And I know there's a lot going on in uh, in Riverside and when it comes to broadband and other areas as well. And uh, the last time you and I uh, met, it was at the uh, conference honoring the top seven intelligent communities. So let's start with this for a second, and then we'll kind of come back to what you guys are doing specifically in, in, in broadband adoption. But uh, for our audience, what's the, what's the story behind the, the, the top seven intelligent communities and what contributed to uh, Riverside being inducted into such an impressive club? Well, I mean, it's it's an honor to be selected as one of the top seven cities uh, in the world. And uh, really, it comes down to a couple of different factors. It's it's what communities are doing with broadband, um, but it also has aspects that include digital inclusion, uh, innovation, uh, knowledge workforce uh, of folks within your community, uh, and then marketing and advocacy. How do, you, how do you get the word out about what it is you're doing? So based on all of that criteria, uh, we ranked very high in all those categories, and, and we're honored to have been selected. Very cool. So, um, now as I understand it, there's an extensive process. They start with about 400 communities and whittle it down to that top seven. Yeah, there's there's kind of two different phases there. Uh, through all the applications, they go through a very intensive process through the applications, uh, and they go through and select a uh, a group of 21, and they call that their Smart 21 communities. And then if you're fortunate enough to make it to a Smart 21 community, uh, then there's a more in-depth application process for all of them to submit to try to get to the number one slot. And as part of that process, you have to uh, host uh, an individual that that comes out to your city uh, and actually physically walks through a series of two to three days of all aspects of your application to firsthand see uh, that in fact what you wrote is in fact what the reality is in in your community, and then they rank the top seven, and then also rank uh, what they believe is the number one in the in the world. Mm-hmm. And if you were to maybe point to two or three things about Riverside, what what was it that that uh, that caught their eye and got you to that point? Do you think? I think two things. One, that that we have a a wireless infrastructure uh, that that covers our entire city, uh, and it's free for all of our citizens. So that's relatively unique. We we went live back in 2007. Uh, We've been live since, and and so we're offering that free to our community at one meg. Uh, And then as a result of being able to offer that free Wi-Fi, the other thing that I believe puts us in the number one spot is in digital inclusion, and that's where we we have a a center that refurbishes computers 
we have partnered with our schools that offer the free training to all of our families here in Riverside. Uh, and then upon graduation from that training, they get a free refurbished computer, a wireless CPE device that extends that outdoor signal indoors to their PC, along with some office software. And so uh, we've benefited a little over 5,000 families to date, and I think based on what we've done there, uh, that's a no-cost solution. It's still considered uh, one of the largest digital inclusion efforts that uh, the ICF has seen. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So a lot of it then was brought, was based on your your digital inclusion uh, effort, um, which is which is good. That's very good. We had um, on the show uh, Chattanooga actually was was our was my lead off guest um, last month, and they too were one of the the top seven. And uh, and obviously you know you know what they're they're doing and so forth. So it's good to see uh, some, you know, some representation of U.S. cities in this because this is a worldwide competition. So it's not just, Correct. you know, not just us here, but this is like the world. Because, you know, on the flip side, you always hear, you know, well, we rank this and we rank low here and this and that and the other. And it's good to see us, you know, getting into that um, into that winner circle. Exactly. So now let me ask this question. So at the conference, there were people, well, clearly the other uh, the other six cities. Uh, which were from a number of countries, and the number of folks in the uh, that were attending are from different uh, were from different countries. Did you pick up any insights about um, you know where we in the U.S. stack up in terms of our broadband efforts, and particularly our broadband efforts for bridging this this uh, digital divide? Well, I think, you know, clearly what you see going on in other countries out there, you're pretty much jealous uh, because of the, the complications of applying the same philosophies here. It was Australia, which was one uh, one country that we talked to, uh, and what they have done is they've actually figured out a way to incorporate a federal tax that will fund fiber to every home within the entire country. Um, and then there's others out there like the Netherlands that are doing similar things where uh, broadband has become a fundamental right as part of their federal constitution and as therefore the country is then providing fiber to the home. So I think as, as, as a country here in the United States, uh, to be able to build out a fiber infrastructure that allows not just high-speed broadband to the home but methods that low income can afford and use it and take advantage of it uh, is going to continue to be an ongoing struggle um, for for this country. And so it really pushes down to the local levels, the cities and the counties, to try to figure out how to unravel that and at least try to provide some benefits, which Riverside, Chattanooga, and Dublin, uh, who are you know, the three there in the United States that have kind of overcome those uh, um, shortcomings and try to at least provide examples of how communities can do it themselves. Mm-hmm. So you're saying that a lot in the end is going to come down to uh, what the local communities do to attack the digital inclusion issues. That's correct. I mean, I think it's it's really clear that, that fiber to the home is, re- is going to be a necessity, but I think it's also clear in coming away from the ICF that fiber isn't going to be the the end result. I mean, we're we're dealing to a world that is going more and more mobile. So in addition, there's got to be a wireless strategy in addition to fiber. Uh-huh. But certainly when you're dealing with a lot of the telehealth issues and you're dealing with uh, a lot of the uh, high-definition services that need to be there, fiber is going to be the delivery of choice uh, to be able to take advantage of those future technologies. But there's still a mobile component out there that is going to be every bit as important uh, to keep everybody connected. Mm-hmm. So now, in addition to the speed question, how do you think we in the U.S. Uh, compare in terms of what we do with broadband? Because I'll take it as a given that you know, if, if we all had a gigabit, life would be easier and if we had the you know the gigabit with all the wireless uh, support and, and expansion and all that you know life would definitely be heaven but that to me is just, just half of the issue you know what we do with it is what matters so what do you what do you see in that realm 
Well, I think having the speed and the capacity there drives innovation. You know, if if the majority of your folks in your country have high-speed services, you're going to have individuals and companies out there driving solutions that take advantage of it. And I think here in the United States, that's been part of our shortcoming is because the average speed of broadband that's available to uh, our residents here isn't driving that kind of innovation. In fact, if anything, it's driving how to deliver minimal amount of content that's useful uh, based on the speeds that are available. And so I think that kind of puts us behind the curve a little bit, especially in things like uh, telehealth, uh, where a lot more could be done in that space. But given our constraints, uh, it'll be decades before a lot of that comes to fruition. Mm-hmm. So we're we're going. So what we do with it is going to be hampered by our speed and the availability of of more faster, better broadband. That's right. We're going to be limited to you know what types of services can be pushed down to your mobile device or your home computer um, that is good enough um, to to serve those particular needs and. And certainly in the consumer space, you know, there's there's a lot of capabilities today where there's good enough technology, whether it's Skype or Netflix or, or other things like that, or even some of the IPTV things. Uh, but as it gets more complex and as you need higher resolution and more HD kind of capabilities, uh, it's going to be more there's going to be more bandwidth intensive requirements. Mm-hmm. Okay. Huh. Well. I guess we have to do what we have to do. Well, let's talk about a little bit about um, uh, the origins of Riverside's network, and we'll come back to talking about you know where what you guys are doing, maybe compared with some of the specific pro- programs in other uh, communities. But um, you started when with this network? Uh, we actually started designing and building it back in 2006. It it went live in 2007. So since that period of time, uh, we we went live with about 1,630 access points across 55 square miles. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, we originally uh, delivered it at speeds of 512K because uh, we were concerned uh, and and we, it was lessons learned really from cities like Philadelphia, who uh, had carriers that uh, uh, you know felt that you know delivering free service was competing with uh, their millions of dollars investments in infrastructure out there. So we actually met with all the carriers that that serviced Riverside. Uh, they all felt 512K was going to be good enough. And then over the course of time, and around 2009. Uh, we made the decision based on other service offerings since most of the carriers had base packages that were much above one meg uh, that we would push that up to one meg, which provided much more capabilities to our, our low income and our digital inclusion families uh, so they could take advantage of that additional capacity. So you're saying in 07 it started, and then when did you move up to the to the one meg? In 2009. Okay, so just two years later. Right. Uh huh. So you started off though with AT&T as a partner, weren't they? We did. We actually went out to a competitive bidding process. This was the time that City of San Francisco uh, was considering it. Philadelphia had just gone live. Uh, we actually took their request for proposals and kind of melded them together because uh, we wanted to deliver a free service here. We went out to bid, uh, and AT&T was selected. Uh, we actually adopted what was considered an anchor tenant. Um, contract where AT&T was willing to deliver it for free citywide at the 512k level uh, but then the city had to be guaranteeing a certain amount of use at 1 meg for all of our city services so our entire police and fire fleet are on uh, a tri-band radio that's part of that network that's running over 49 uh, we have about 250 vehicles that are actively using that today and then we also have other city services that are leveraging uh, a non-broadcast SSID that's part of the 2.4 Wi-Fi network that services things like our parking meters, our traffic signals, our ball field lights, things of that nature. Uh-huh. And so they were okay with that uh, that arrangement. Now, when you moved from uh, 512 up to a meg, was there any consternation at that point, or did they, were they still okay with that? 
Cause that so was what, ha- free, right? what happened in, in 2009 was AT&T purchased Wayport. And when they purchased Wayport, who provided their uh, Wi-Fi broadband services for Starbucks, Barnes & Noble, McDonald's, um, their business model changed. They've, they basically felt that those were profitable models for them, um, and yet the municipal wireless projects that they were doing in Riverside, St. Louis, and San Antonio um, weren't profitable. And so, in in that so what happened at that period of time is AT&T exited the muni wireless space and uh, transferred the network over to the city of Riverside. So at that point in time, uh, the city went out to bid for an operator of our Wi-Fi network, and so uh, we actually selected US Internet out of Minneapolis, uh-huh. who was running Minneapolis's wireless network. And uh, they're the ones that have been running it since that period of time. And so when U.S. Internet came in, uh, since it was now city-owned, uh, we upgraded the the speed to one meg at that time. Ah, okay. And and then again, you don't. You don't it appears that you don't have much of a conflict with the local incumbents uh, in spite of that. No, we have not. Ah. Why? Why is that? I, I have to. I have to come back to that because I mean, you, you probably know as well as any. There's been so many um, contentious issues about broadband and networks and the city ownership and all the rest of it. That even though obviously AT&T turned it over, it just you know I, I'm still a little bit surprised that um, you know no one else kicked up a dust and said oh well you know this is unfair yada yada yada. I think because we're not reselling it. I think if we were, re- you know, city acquired it and then resold it, I think that would create more um, contention with the carriers than us just raising the speed slightly and mm-hmm. still not competing with a lot of their base packages. So okay. most of the base packages from Charter, AT&T, and Verizon are starting in the 3 meg, which is three times above what we're delivering. Okay. And I would say that a lot of the the the, the non low income, our middle class and upper class that that ask about it, um, you know, they basically feel, well, you know, I have to buy a CPE. We give them away to our low income, but mm-hmm. the CPE device itself is about a hundred dollars. So in order to get a good strong signal indoors, um, you've got to have a CPE. And I'd say mm-hmm. most of the folks are just feeling, hey, you know. Why go through that investment? In some cases, a little bit of a complicated installation because you have to place this antenna on the exterior home and then run, uh, you know, RJ45 cable down into your house, into where your computer or your router is. Uh, and for most, don't want to go through that hassle and feel, hey, I'll just pay a monthly rate to the carriers and and get the benefits of, you know, three meg at 19.95 a month, or I can, you know, go at a faster speed if I'm willing to pay that as well. So I think it works out really good, and we we have a lot of options here. And I think one of the nice things that AT&T did uh, when they did the wireless network is we also granted them expeditious permitting so that they could roll out UVerse through our entire city because we only had really one carrier at that time, which was Charter. Um, and I would say half the people liked it, half the people didn't, but the bottom line, there wasn't competition to drive the price points for uh, broadband service in Riverside. So when AT&T came in, delivered the Wi-Fi, we also now had competition in the broadband space, and now AT&T offers packages all the way up to 20 meg and higher. And then we also have a sliver of Verizon Fios in in part of our city as well, who offer speeds all the way up to 50 meg, and they've run fiber all the way to the home to some of them. So we've we've got a lot of different options here in the city, and it all stemmed around um, us providing options to to the consumers here in Riverside. Well, that seemed to have seemed to have worked out fairly well, and you know, again, particularly given the the size of the market and. Uh, there are obviously a number of, of communities that uh, on the lar- on the higher population end that seem to be navigating the waters fairly well with uh, with the incumbents and the local providers. Uh, Santa Monica comes to mind because their uh, their population is about seventy eight thousand, but they're nestled right next to uh, L A. So clearly, they're not considered a, a um, you know a rural community or whatever. They're in they're in that urban mix. But their their network is doing well, and they've they've managed to avoid a lot of like a lot of this grief. Um, now this is a, a mesh network, if I'm not mistaken, correct? Yes, it is. We we use uh, a product by a company called Bel Air out of Canada. Ah, uh, Bel Air Net. Yes, yes, no, no. And uh, so yeah, we have a mesh network. So 
Uh, it's fed by a series of four broadband access points that are all fiber fed. And then from there, it does uh, line of sight to um, to these these uh, um, gateway devices that then in, you know go out to the mesh, which extends every gateway feeds about seven to eight access points. So mm -hmm. those are spread throughout the city. Interesting. Now, how long did it take to build all this in the beginning? Um, it took about twelve months to build it out. Wow, that's not that too long. I mean, for what's what's the jig? What's the the uh, square mileage there for Riverside? I mean, roughly. So we have 86 square miles total in the city. We have 55 that are most, most populous. So we covered our 55 areas that are more populous in nature because Riverside used to be a citrus industry, a lot of orange groves, a lot of big parcels, and so it didn't make sense to really try to cover uh, the vacant park space and, and those locations with Wi-Fi. So we just focused on the 55, which is where really where the consumers needed it, and especially our low-income families. Mm -hmm. Now, have you made any major enhancements to the um, to the infrastructure itself? I mean, I know you increased the speed, but other than that, have did, did you at some point did you have to you know swap out new stuff for the older stuff? I and mean, what that's been there four year, five years, four years now. Yeah, four years now, and no, we haven't. So uh, the gear is performing very well. Um, that was our initial concern: is hey, after five years, are we going to have to replace all this? Uh, you know, what's going to be the meantime between failures on it? Um, so far, knock on wood, um, things have performed very well. We've had minimal replacements of, of product out there, uh, even through the very hot spills we have here in our city, as well as the, the wet winters. So um, it's, it's, really, it's really worked well. And we're hopeful that we'll be able to get at least another four, maybe five years out of that technology. And then after that, we'll try to revisit where, uh, the wireless spaces at that point in time for a possible refresh. Can you put a price tag on what this all costs to build out, or did AT&T absorb all of that? AT&T absorbed all of the costs. Uh costs us probably in the neighborhood of half a million dollars a year uh, for main, paying an operator to, to, to keep it running for us and uh, to do all the replacements and RMAs and uh, keeping the network operational. Mm-hmm. And does the city, besides the digital inclusion part, does the city see a payback in other areas on that investment? Well, I th really what drove the wireless project here was economic development. We had CEOs of high-tech companies that uh, created a group called the CEO Forum. That group came uh, to the city and said, hey, you know, from an economic development standpoint, we really think if you blanket your downtown areas uh, with wireless, it will help your 55,000 higher education students that are graduating here to hopefully want to continue to stay here and live here. Um, and so we went a step further. We said, well, why just do the downtown? Let's do the entire city. So that was really the initial aspects of it. I'd say the number one reason we did it and we continue to do it was for economic development reasons. But I think the second, that is certainly for elected officials, the most critical component has been digital inclusion. Um, you've got a lot of those low income that vote. Um, you've got a lot of them that are now depending on it to further their education, uh, maybe try to get a better job. Uh, but more importantly for our students, we've now reached a threshold where any kid within our K through 12 um, has computer and has internet access. We no longer have that digital divide where a kid that's going to, to the school uh, can't come home and get his homework or her homework done. Uh, we've now um, overcome that, and uh, I would say as a result of that, that's become probably one of the number one reasons why our elected officials are saying uh, we want to keep wireless going in Riverside. Right. So definitely I can see where there's um, there's value there that makes a lot of sense for folks. Uh, you mentioned uh, you were the anchor tenant at the point, uh, that two-year stretch when AT&T was involved. Does the city still use the network? So the city's still using the network, uh, and we don't have to pay for that anymore. So uh, <laughs> that that's a, uh, a cost avoidance now that we have, now that we operate the network. We're certainly paying somebody to manage it and maintain it, but we have that cost avoidance on the other side. So, yes, all of our police and fire um, actually are using Panasonic uh, mobile data computers in their vehicle. 
Uh, they're all connected to the 4.9 network, uh, and they also do have uh, 3G cards that are in their units as well. And so we use a product called Radio IP that does a session persistence between them. Um, that works out well. We're also doing uh, video inside our police vehicles, and uh, that's done locally through a product by a company called Coban. Uh, and then after the incident reports are done, that video is uh, sent electronically over the wireless 4.9 network and stored uh, permanently back at City Hall. So we're leveraging that. Uh, we have expanded our traffic management center, our large arteries, all of the controls. Are, are done wirelessly back to our traffic management center where they have line of sight uh, of cameras. So in early morning and late afternoon hours, they're able to open up traffic to uh, improve the, the flows in those critical portions of the day. Yeah, okay. So one one last question on this track, and then we'll talk more start with talking more about digital inclusion. Do you see fiber or or and or uh, different types of wireless playing a role in uh, future enhancements to this network? Um, from a fiber perspective, our utility, we, we own our own power and elect, uh, electric wa and water utility, and they also have a very extensive fiber infrastructure throughout the city. So our entire wireless backhaul, which was originally AT&T pipes to each of these fiber-fed facilities, was easily replaced with utility fiber. So we, we purchase a, a one gig connection, uh, ISP connection, that actually feeds our utility fiber and provides that infrastructure for our city. So all of our city facilities are all uh, public utility fiber fed. Uh, so from a fiber standpoint, we're rich in fiber, um, and uh, at least not down to the household yet, but at least for all the city facilities. And so that's working out for us quite well. Oh, cool. So your your wireless then is being um, really pumped up by that, and then that obviously impacts the speed of your wireless connect uh, connectivity and what you can do with that in the future. That's correct. Great. So let's talk about uh, the digital inclusion part. So what vision did people have initially uh, about digital inclusion? So, so in, in, in 2007... What were they expecting this network to do from a digital inclusion perspective? Um, you mean the low-income families? Yes. Or I would say when people first found out about it, it was mostly through our schools. And that's when the words you know, started getting out there. We didn't really actually publicize it very much, but our schools did because our schools said the number one thing we want to do is we want to make sure that every family – that sending a kid to school has a computer with broadband access at home. And so it wasn't more than a month that we had a backlog of 500, 700 families needing to get into the program. So we <laughs> quickly ramped up um, and, and had Smart Riverside, which is a nonprofit that uh, I'm the executive director of, and we actually hire youth um, that are actually due to a gang intervention program where we take these kids, mentor them, teach them PC refurbishment skills, get them A-plus certification. Uh, and what they do is they collect e-waste. So we're, we self-sustain our program by being an e-waste collector. We get all these donated computers from private sector, as education, and, and government, as well as households. And we get, we're able to give them a tax deduction, which uh, a lot of recycling places don't give you a tax deduction capability. So we, we get a ton of e-waste through there. And uh, what we are ending up doing is we refurbish things that are working, and if they're not working, we resell them to a statewide certified recycler who gives us credit that we can either convert to cash or we actually buy working systems from them. So probably about 80% of the systems that we buy are based on systems that they purchase. These are systems that are coming from corporate America that are coming off lease, and they'll just buy them by the truckloads. And uh, so we, we refurbish about 150 of those per month. Uh, we've also outfitted all the labs at our uh, schools so that all the schools, uh, the elementary schools, have labs there. The teachers are teaching these classes um, after school. And so the original expectations to answer your question was, uh, you know, am I going to be able to get a PC at home? Is it going to be fast enough so that my kid can be able to get their schoolwork done? And I think it was very quickly realized that, yes, you know, if you had the CPE, and I think that was the biggest 
issue we had originally was if you don't have a CPE and you have a PC, you don't have you know you don't have broadband. You know, right, right. And, you got to have uh, it all be a mix. And but I not think a mix, uh, it all has to be part of a package. Right. So I think having the complete package, they realized, yeah, we met their expectations, and that's when our numbers have grown, and that's how we've gotten to 5,000 families. I would say some of the pitfalls we've had is because these access points are installed 18 feet up in the air compared to what a normal installation is doing, that the average notebook, iPad, iPhone type of user uh, indoors, it just doesn't work. Outdoors, it, it works fine. Uh, but, you know, in order for people to want the same experience that they have with their Wi-Fi that's in their house through a, a paid service, um, it just doesn't work as good. You can extend uh, a CP device into a wireless router in your home and be able to get that broadcast through, but that's just additional gear that people want to buy, and I think that level of complexity that's required for a typical average family they typically don't do that, so they stay with what they're comfortable with that requires minimal intervention. Right. Uh, now, you talked about, you know, the various programs that are going on with uh, Smart Riverside is the is the non-profit. It's a non-profit company? Yes, it is. Okay. Um, this addresses a point uh, that a number of people bring up, which is the sustainability um, there has been a fair amount of money given to broadband adoption programs and computing centers from the broadband stimulus. And yet there are folks who will will come in and say, well, this is good, but have these communities thought through, you know, a sustainability program? What happens when the money runs out? Because on the face of it, broadband adoption programs and broadband um, and uh, computing centers don't generate money. You know, it's not like you've built this infrastructure and you're going to figure out one day you will sell services and make your investment back that way. In this case, on the face of it, people say, well, that's just a money sink. But if I'm listening to what you're saying and interpreting correctly, you have created the sustainability model in all of these various services that you've set up. Is that correct? That is correct. So, how he did that was, you know, the, the training centers, number one, and, and it required partnership there. Um, you know, we have our community centers and our libraries. They have probably about 500 PCs amongst maybe 15 facilities that, if you will, are really these uh, community training centers. People can walk in there, uh, for, freely use them. There might be a time limit, like an hour. Uh, mm -hmm. You can use the device, but so you have high-speed broadband and free PCs at those centers that are air conditioning and nice and get a lot of use. Uh, but then on our digital inclusion standpoint, we try to encourage people, hey, you know, get get a system and have it at home. Um, and, you know, having, in order to focus on the self-sustainability of that, um, e-waste was really the number one reason. We we didn't really know if we were going to be able to self-sustain it when we started because they mm -hmm. said, well, let's just see how much e-waste we get. Uh, we had no idea that the first year we would generate $150,000 in e-waste uh, just by converting um, TVs, uh, cell phones, stereos, and things like that to, to e-waste collection companies that are paying upwards of $0.20 cents a pound. Uh, they converted into hard, cold cash, and we were able to grow our, our program from one full-time person to now we have four full-time uh, employees that are in the program. Uh, and we've been able to mentor some of our youth where two of them are full-time benefited employees now um, that have gone through the program and others are being mentored to hopefully join along with that. So um, that's how we've been able to self-sustain it. We also run a charity golf tournament, and a lot of people in the community enjoy what we're doing. And that one golf charity probably brings in $120,000 a year uh, one time uh, just from that event because people in the community have seen what we've done. They like what we're doing. Um, and between e-waste and our golf charity, we're able to buy upwards of 3,000 PCs per year, 300 Microsoft Office licensing because we're a Microsoft authorized uh, reseller, which is able to, to buy those licenses for $5 each and transfer those to those families. And then lastly, buy a CPE, 3,000 CPEs, which is probably our hugest cost, probably costs us upward, upwards of thirty-five to $45,000 a year just in CPEs. 
So all of that is funded by the program along with the salaries of the individuals, and there still is plenty of money to operate the nonprofit. And the e-waste program, again, you said that's – is that e-waste that you're recycling or recycling in general? I, I, I think I missed a point there. Um, it is e- – we actually recycle two things. We actually recycle e-waste, which is your TVs, and TVs are actually the biggest weighted item that generates the most money. Computers, stereos, cell phones, anything electronic. You don't do washing machines, refrigerators, that kind ah, of thing. okay. And then we also do recycle uh, printer toner cartridges as well. It's not as lucrative, but uh, it's part of our green uh, environment. doesn't take up too much space and just brings in a little bit of cash as well. So that's big-time money for what people probably look at. It's a very simple, you know, I mean, granted, we all probably have three or four devices sitting somewhere in a corner, but no one really thinks about the fact that, that if you actually were to aggregate that over a large area of people, that you could probably collect a fairly decent amount of, of poundage, uh, pounds of, of, of stuff. Yeah, and I think and I think the key is having it as a nonprofit because having that tax deduction really is lucrative because we market the heck out of the tax deduction components in November, December, so that people will clean out their garages, get that tax deduction for their taxes. So it really it really makes a difference. That's pretty slick. That's pretty slick. Now, did it take a lot to get the the momentum for this whole thing going? Um, it did. It probably took us probably a year and a half to two years uh, before, number one, it could be fully self-sustained. Um, so, yeah, it did require seed money up front for about two years before we saw the e-waste starting to come in. Uh, another thing that we also did to made it very easy for registration uh, into the training classes to get into the digital inclusion program is we have a 311 center. So anybody that wants to get into it, all they got to do is call 311 from their cell phone or landline phone, and they'll register them right into the system. And within 30 to 60 days, they're enrolled into a class uh, and getting through the program. So you got a little slow startup, and then you just gather that momentum thing. And then it, I'm guessing a lot of it just builds on itself by word of mouth and the positive outcomes that, that, are, that are generated by this whole thing. Right. I, I think the biggest challenges, though, we have going forward is we've been trying to do continually about 150 PCs per month, or which turns into a family. So we only give a PC per family. We don't get unless you're a foster child. As many foster child live in a home, they all get one. But those have been kind of our limitations going in. The challenge now is we also provide lifetime warranty as long as Smart Riverside's in business. Um, if you have a problem with your PC, if it breaks, if it blue screens, for whatever the case, um, it's exchanged for free. So that way the family doesn't have to fork out money. They're always assured that they're going to have some type of working device. So we're now seeing after 5,000 systems are there, and these are systems that aren't new, right? These are systems that are four and five years old, so their lifespan's probably only another one to two years. So we're seeing that probably half the systems or more that we produce every month go to just swap outs for the families that we've already served. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, we're, we're seeing that we need to continue to grow the program as we expand uh, and reach all of our low-income populations. So um, you know, we might need to be uh, another two or three people deep in order to serve uh, the entire uh, city effectively. Mm-hmm. Now, you mentioned that there was a certain level of, un- um, I wouldn't say uncertainty, but not necessarily you know, having a crystal clear view of the future, you know, that this was going to actually fly and be sustainable and so forth. What got you over the hurdle um uh, and, and 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 what i mean by that is <clears throat> it's hard to sell a program to some people if you don't have sort of ironclad oh we're going to do this and it's going to produce x y and z but if you don't have that which is the case that you guys had how do you get past that hurdle how do you get people to you know to trust in the program to invest whatever whether it's political capital or real capital and time and all of that into the program well, I, th- I think it helped that Smart Riverside is chaired by our mayor, so that, that helps because <laughs> okay. he firsthand sees it. So, yeah, I think, number one, you have to have some belief up front that it can make a difference. But at some point, you do need to measure the success. So right. you do need to have metrics in place. And so what we did after year two was we actually hired one of our local universities that actually came in. Uh, we were able to get Dell to donate printers to 
uh, about 200 families, and the university came in and and actually went to the physical household of each family and did a survey if they were willing to spend a half hour with this individual, do the survey, which they had to verify that they could turn the computer on, verify that they could make use out of it. Uh, they were given this free computer to go along with their system. Um, so the feedback that we got from those 200 surveys was very positive. Uh, and, you know, the mayor, after hearing that, okay, we've been doing this for two, long, for two years now, um, what has been the meaningful impacts on families? And there were so many great stories of how the kids are doing better in school, um, how the parents are now able to follow up with what their kids are doing in school because of some of the technologies that our schools have available to them, uh, as well as their ability to now uh, compete with peers in their neighborhood for not just jobs, but you know, shopping, knowing where to go for certain services, things of that nature. It, it, it was really inspiring to, to see that probably about 80 to 85 percent of all the families that went through our program have had some meaningful change in their life. And so as a result, that made it very easy for our city council to get behind and say, hey, how can we do more and how can we do it faster? Mm-hmm. And so that's been our our struggle ever since was, yeah, after we met that metric, it was how can we do it faster? And when we started it doing it faster, we weren't sure how we were going to pay for it all. And that's when the e-waste components just started coming in. People started seeing the benefits of the program. Um, and it just kind of all fell into place. And by year three, we were fully self-sustained. Okay. So it's by leveraging the the success stories. It was a lot, seems like a large part of it. Right, because we uh, actually had uh, hard-cold numbers that and metrics that we could provide uh, to our newspapers and, and to um, our, our government that they, they, they then trusted it. So we're now into our fifth year, and we've now hired another, a different university, and we're going through the process again to develop those metrics. And this time we're um, interviewing 400 families and, and and having a little larger benchmark. And so we should have in the next 30 days those metrics of of measurement of how we've been doing over the last five years. Can't argue with success. <laughs> <laughs> that's um, that's definitely pretty good. And it seems like the kind of thing that other communities could also replicate. Uh, and I don't know if you got maybe you guys have a plan already for sort of creating a I don't know a template or whatever. But it seems like as I'm reading the or listening to this, it's it, it sounds very much a um, something that can be imitated. It definitely can, and uh, we're we're happy to host any any agency that wants to come in here and, and see how we operate. But I think the key in my mind is if we didn't have the wireless network, it's very difficult to have digital inclusion. There's got I know some cities argue that hey, if you give away broadband and the computer, then there's no value for it. But what we find in our low-income families is these folks are having a tremendous decision. Hey, do I want a cell phone? Do I want TV service? Or do I want Internet? And most of the times they can't afford all three. In many cases Mm -hmm. they only can afford one, and typically it's the cell phone. And so we're finding the give it away is very meaningful, and the results that we're seeing are tremendous out there. So you just have to open up the vision a little bit so that people stop looking at it in terms from, you know, 10 years ago approach to government and 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 assistance programs and all of that and 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 start fresh and say, well, you know, new technology, new approach. That's right. So if you can't provide free or reduce broadband service, I would say it's going to be very challenging to uh to have a very strong digital inclusion program in your community. So therein lies the linchpin. And you think it has That's to be it. wireless as opposed to um, other technologies? No, I don't think so. I mean, if I was Chattanooga and if it was city-owned fiber, I would try to get some kind of ordinance made available that says anybody that makes less than X um, can provide it at, at a free or reduced price. Mm-hmm. And I think cool. you could do the same thing there. Right, right. Well, that, that makes a lot of sense. I like that one. So let's talk about maybe more policy-related uh, um, issues? Because you and I have talked policy as well as we've talked about uh, your your programs. Um, do you feel like, if, as you look at other communities and their approaches or hopeful approaches toward digital inclusion, um, are, do, you see people, do you see us making headway as a country in this realm? 
closing the digital divide? Yeah, I mean, I think we are. Um, you know, I, I think if you go to third world countries, if you take a look at what they're doing to try to bridge that divide, it's Internet cafes, right? I mean, you go uh-huh. to another country, all you see is these Internet cafes, which are all paid services, but they're always packed. I mean, that's the only way that those countries can compete with the outside world. And I think what we do well here in the United States, um, especially at the local level, uh, between community centers, senior centers, and our libraries, is we've already built these cafes out there. Uh, a lot of people may not understand that they're there, uh, but once they learn that they are there, there's a free resource for technology that's available to all Americans out there. So to a certain extent, these community centers are are already there and are doing very well. So I think that's the first step. I think the second is... Um, is is digital inclusion how do you get those computers in the household so they don't have to travel to these centers is is the next big hurdle that we have and the struggle is you just have carriers out there that you know don't have services in most cases that can provide a free or reduced service to uh, a low-income family and their lines are challenged so then it becomes the responsibility of government uh, to come in to try to uh, bridge that divide so making the the libraries and the community centers and all of that bridge with the providers and services or or maybe providing their own services. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, kind of saying that right now in your house, you know, you're you're limited to whatever carriers can provide your broadband service. And you know, if if you're low income and you can't afford a telephone line, you can't afford broadband service then I think it's really the government's responsibility if your community wants to bridge the digital divide is figure out how can you get that broadband to the house, whether it's fiber, whether it's wireless, um, to be able to benefit that that family. Otherwise, uh, the constant struggle for them is to go to a regional location where there's there's free resources available to them. So how how does the government do that um, and either avoid or overcome the, the the constant pushback of you know government shouldn't be in this business and let the free market decide and all of that. Well, I mean, therein lies the challenge. I mean, that's what Riverside has done. You know, with our free wireless network, as we said, you know, um, we're, we're just going to do it. We're we're going to make it happen. We're going to we we feel it's worth the investment, and and I think that's. What's going to make it more exciting in the future is that uh, wireless broadband solutions are coming down in price. It used to be about 100,000 per square mile. I would say now it's probably down closer to 50,000. Who knows where it'll be two or three years from now? Um, and so these communities, and right now with the economic challenges we all face, it's probably not good timing for anybody starting broadband initiatives. But at some point when the economy does turn around, um, I think that will be a key focus for many. Is Okay, you know, from an economic development standpoint um, and from an educational standpoint for all of our future kids that are going to end up being the leaders in our community, uh, we got to make sure that they've got the technology that's necessary uh, to make them flourish. And, uh, and, and I think that that, that is going to be a, resp- a fundamental responsibility at the local level unless the federal government can actually figure out a way to deliver a similar service that the country of Australia and, and what the Netherlands have done um, with a nationwide system. Right. Okay. So there is a um, there is a need to step into the breach because the rewards are what's going to make it worthwhile, and people have to have that uh, some level of commitment in that um, in that realm. Why do you think there is the I don't know if there's if pushback is the right word, but it seems like this the, the urban situation doesn't get as much attention as the rural, and it's not a one versus the other. It seems like it should be an included. If you talk about rural, you should be talking about urban. If you talk about urban, you should be talking about rural. But I feel, and maybe it's just my perception, that we we sort of slight the the low income uh, part of the equation. Or at least the urban part of that. I agree with you. I mean, everybody, for the most part, has a choice, right? A choice where you live and a choice with what you do. 
and some of them choose to live rural and some of them choose to live in an urban environment. Um, and I think if you really take a look at broadband options available to, to you, there's, there's broadband options available to anybody. I mean, rural folks can use satellite today. may not be cost-effective, right, but mm-hmm. you got an option. So everybody has broadband options today regardless of where you live. So the fundamental question is um, what can you provide to those that can't afford it and how do you give them equal footing in in our country? And so there therein lies the challenge. And so I think there's easier ways to to bridge and to resolve digital inclusion issues in the urban environment than in the rural environment. In the rural environment, there's just unfortunately going to be a lack of funds available for anybody that's going to be willing to do it for free. Right. And you have to find a creative way to bridge that particular challenge, really. That's right. In your mind, what makes for an effective broadband adoption program? Like, What would you be the three key components or four key components? Um, Number one... it, it needs to start at the top of your organization. You need to have somebody that understands technology um, and is willing to take a risk. I think number two is there's got to be community demand for it. So in our particular case, CEOs of high-tech companies saying this is an economic development issue. We want to be able to attract the best and the brightest talent here. You've got to make this a high-tech city. So I think that you got to have a community outreach, or maybe it's even your low income that are coming in and saying, "Hey, you know, uh, we want equal footing with everybody else out there. We're we're just missing a, a, an important component." So that outcry, I think, is number two, and I think number three really is your elected officials have to agree and, and commit to it, and and give it a fair shot, and and understand the benefits not just to themselves selfishly but to really what the true gains are going to be for your entire community if you're able to get it done. Right. Uh Now, you know, a minute ago I talked about we need to look, in essence, outside of the norm, you know, how we typically approach these kinds of issues. And one of the things that struck me about the value of Riverside's program is there's a a concerted effort to turn um, the, the, the youth into a workforce, and then that workforce provides the training for seniors and other adults. But the other thing that you do in your programs is that you train these teens and others how to be productive workers, how to operate effectively in a traditional work environment. They have to come to work on time. They have to look a certain way. They have to be neat and clean, or they lose their job, like the real world. And to me... That's different. That's a different kind of approach. Yes or no? Um, it's a different kind of approach, and I think it just happened that we happened to have a local program that um, had these youth and, and was struggling where to place them and, and mm-hmm. how to make them useful uh, persons in our society. And so um, I think we were fortunate to be able to, to get to that program and find some kids that had the aptitude and the skill set for it. I would say the first couple of years was rough. I, I bet we went through 27 of these kids before we found individuals that realized, hey, we're paying you, and when you're being paid, you got to learn how to dress, you got to learn how to talk, and you can't be using a cell phone to text your friends or or, <laughs> or chat during the day, and you got to show up to work on time. You know, if you can't do any of those things, uh, we're going to give you one strike, and if you strike out, next there's you know 50 other kids in line that want your job. That you know, starting at ten bucks an hour, and you know, we give them hefty increases if they perform well. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I, th- I think once the kids got that, and they started seeing uh, a couple of mentors that picking it up did a good job, changed their lives around. Um, you know, were able to afford and buy a car, and they they started to turn around. So now we've got four youth that are doing great work, and uh, you know, we hope that they'll spin off into to job other jobs like Geek Squad or work in some private sector company as a PC tech or something like that, and then uh, we'll be able to filter in the other kids that are in demand um, to backfill them. How easy do you think it's going to be to convince other government, uh, local government entities, or even at the federal level, to support programs like this, where you walk in and say, not only do we want to you know, bring in a computer center, but we want to have a program that teaches business regimen. We want to te- teach people how to be good employees. 
I mean, that's radical thinking. <laughs> yeah, it is radical thinking, you know. But uh, I, I think to a certain extent, a, a lot of the programs already exist, especially uh, through some of the development agencies out there that are doing workforce development kind of work. Uh, you know, the welfare systems and unemployment areas, uh, a lot of them have job training programs that actually go through those exact same things. So it's basically those kind of techniques that they're teaching to the unemployed um, that, that we're, we're actually teaching to, to youth that maybe are a little immature, that have never been in a business environment, have never been able to hold a job or never even given the opportunity to have a job, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, teaching them those same skills. That's so I think good. the programs exist out there. It's just getting those people to partner and talk to one another so that you can create these programs in other areas that maybe you haven't considered. Mm-hmm. So as we come into the last few minutes of the show, I want to touch on one thing. Again, you and I have talked about this before, but it is one the one aspect of USF reform is the idea of trying to take the $10 a month subsidy for telephone service and expanding that program to support uh, broadband. So though it's not clear what that will look like, the essence of it is, uh, is saying, okay, we want to take you know $10 a month per person that's eligible and allow them to have the option of buying telephone service or broadband service. What are, What are your thoughts on that? Well, I think it's a good start. I mean, compared to what we have today, there there really aren't a lot of options like that. You know, I think anytime you give um, somebody a choice with what they can do, I think that's a good thing. Um, so I think that will likely be a huge stepping stone um, that maybe won't reach everybody, but I think it'll still reach a large number of the population and make a significant change in the way that... Uh, some of those folks that couldn't afford it today um, might be able to figure out how. But what do you think about taking that money, because it's so little, has so little impact on a per-person basis, maybe aggregating that money? So if you've got 20,000 low-income individuals in a in a community, instead of offering $10 per month subsidy per person, what would happen if they aggregated that money and said, look, you know, our collective buying power is whatever, 20,000 times, 20, 10 bucks, so it's like $200,000 a month, and say, what's the best solution that anybody out there, you know, we open this up to the world, is willing to give us for that money? Is it possible that there may be a better long-term solution in that versus the individual subsidy approach? I think what happens when you end up trying to do the latter is you end up pooling these dollars and they end up getting to accounts that serve no useful purpose or end up delivering something that the end result didn't materialize. So I would say that if you did kind of what states do today in in some cases with surcharge on phone bills that pay for 911 systems with a 911 Mm -hmm. surcharge, if you had something like that that was controlled and said this can only be used for local Wi-Fi or fiber-to-the-home projects and just let it grow, um, to the point where it might be a fund where a community might be able to build and deliver something that might be useful. But I think just having something out there, I would just be afraid that there would be too many government officials out there that would end up spending on things other than what they were, the intended use was for. So it would have to have a clearly defined path of operation and use and so forth in order to be effective. That's That's my belief. Okay. Well, I I can't argue with that. I mean, I I think that, you know, the bigger issue is that uh, people need to think in these terms because I know that I bring it up to some people and they just automatically say, no, we can't do that. You know, it'll never work because it's never worked in the past and block grants are bad and yada, yada, yada. And I kind of sit back and go, maybe we ought to think differently again. (laughs) Well, that's going to pretty much wrap us for today. Um, Steve, I want to thank you very much for taking the time to be here and sharing some of your experiences in Riverside cuz this is very educational you know to to know what you're what you're doing there and, and the kinds of successes that you're you're having so you know thank you for being here well thank you Craig appreciate it and i also want to thank our media partners um Gigaom Broadband Communities Magazine 
MuniWireless.com, and Community Broadband Networks. And I want to thank our audience for being with us and listening to the show. And you want to be here next week because on Wednesday I will have as my guest uh, FCC Commissioner Clyburn, and we're going to talk about a number of things related to USF reform and government policies relative to broadband. So it's going to be a very lively, informative discussion. Thanks again, everyone, and have a great day.